I'm J.R. Woodward, and Jennifer McCoy is my guest on Our Social Landscape. Dr. McCoy is Regents Professor of Political Science at Georgia State University, non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and a research affiliate at the Central European University Democracy Institute in Budapest. She also served as director of the Jimmy Carter, Carter's Americas program for 17 years, leading projects on democratic strengthening, mediation and dialogue, and hemispheric cooperation. The main reason I reached out to Professor McCoy, as I mentioned in the interview, was an attempt to make sense of our current political landscape, which seems completely off the chain in ways that I believe are unique. From national level political dialogue all the way down to the folks drinking beer at my local Winn-Dixie, It seems that vitriol, accusation, and condemnation are the dominant political narratives, with no seeming attempts to understand and work with those on the other side of the fence. I'm not a political scientist, so I can't state an expert opinion on this current set of circumstances, but it does seem, from what I know, to truly be a different era of political discourse, one where hatred, mistrust, and fear drive people's angles and attitudes. I've been noticing this for a few years now, but it wasn't until my friend Rom Coltman asked me about it specifically that I really started questioning it. We were enjoying a beer after a Friday morning swim, and he really dug into it. We're in our 50s, and we've been paying attention to the world for a good while now, and neither of us could make sense of exactly how America came to be in this position. Over the years since that conversation, I've asked many of my guests here on the podcast for their theory, and I keep digging and digging and digging. So when I came across the work of Jennifer McCoy, I was really intrigued. She calls it pernicious political polarization, and that description is just perfect. I never would have come up with the term, but it hits the nail on the head. I don't want to spoil the interview by giving it all away here, but as you might guess, the fear is that this level of polarization includes a concomitant eroding of democratic principles. One final introductory note before we get started. I actually conducted this interview last fall in 2023, but purposely postponed putting on the website until now. One reason is that I wanted to wait until we enter this election year, and at this point, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the presumptive nominees for president, yet again, a reality that makes no one happy. Also, today is the fourth anniversary of our social landscape, so I figured my fifth year of this blog and podcast is going to be a heavy one. Our political system is a mess, and I'm happy that Professor McCoy agreed to give me some insight into how we got here and how we might move forward and forestall further calamity. Hello. I am a political science professor at Georgia State University in Atlanta, and I started this project about eight years ago to study um, what I called pernicious polarization because of my work first in Venezuela. Uh, I had studied Venezuela for a long time as an academic, but I had also worked as a mediator there through the Carter Center with former President Jimmy Carter Mm. when we were invited to help to uh, bring communication between President Hugo Chavez at that time, this is two decades ago, and his political opposition. And I watched that country really divide politically 
and socially, families dividing, communities dividing, and a real enmity building among them. And then uh, eventually the democracy failing, and finally the economy failing. And uh, I, I started looking at those dynamics and could see them happening in other countries around the world. So I wanted to study that, and I recruited a group of scholars to help to study help me study that. And we found very similar dynamics of the way it works mm. in very, very different countries, rich countries, poor countries, all different cultures. I also could see it happening in the United States, and it made me very concerned. Sure. So I've been studying it since then. Okay, great. Did you actually meet uh, former President Carter? Uh, yes, I worked with him extensively. I uh, was uh, working at the Carter Center, yeah, as a director of the Americas program. So I traveled with him extensively to Latin America. Wow, that must have been a treat, yeah. So I wanted to talk to you in an attempt to make some sense of our current political landscape. And I've really been thinking about it for a couple of years. I started this blog in, in 2020. And then we have um, the George Floyd murder and the subsequent protests, and then that election in the fall. And I interviewed a number of people, strangers and acquaintances, just about their thoughts on the election. And and since then, of course, it's probably intensified. The Trump presidency, the January 6th, the, all the DeSantis uh, happenings here in Florida. And so conversations with friends and students usually end up being like, what the hell is going on in the U.S.? Like, is is this a really unique time? There's always been some contention. I know civil war, civil rights. You know, we've always had difficult times, but it seems like right now it's just a different kind of heavier time. So I didn't have a real quick and easy answer, and I've been working on it ever since. And, and trying to gain that understanding led me to you and particularly your work on that pernicious polarization. So maybe you could uh, start by defining what that term really means in the literature, like how you all use it in, in your field. And then um, the first part of my inquiry, do you think this is uh, a unique time that we're living through, or is this just a uh, one in many cycles? Great questions. Um, the way that I define pernicious polarization is when a society divides into two mutually distrustful and antagonistic political camps. So I'm talking about political polarization here. So political camps. And in some countries, that might be their identification with a particular leader. Like in Venezuela, it was pro-Chavez or anti-Chavez. So it's not necessarily a um, division between two political parties. In the United States, it is two political parties. And it's pernicious because when it becomes extreme, then politics gets simplified around this, this single dividing line. And it means that people um, become suspicious of each other. They stop communicating, stop being willing to compromise. And that breaks down the ability of our government to solve problems, to work together to solve problems. Yeah. And eventually it creates an existential threat so that people actually perceive that if the other party comes into power, it can be an existential threat to their way of life or to the nation as they know it. Mm -hmm. And therefore... They may be willing to support anti-democratic practices uh, to keep their side in power or to get their side into power. And so that's the pernicious consequences for democracy. Um, certainly in the United States as a society, we have been divided in the past, severely divided. You mentioned the Civil War, of course. Um, that's the, you know, the extreme when it erupts into violence and war. We're trying to prevent that today. 
we've been divided. There's been um, uh, polarization around the turn of the the century from the 19th to the 20th century. There was mm-hmm. there were some similar circumstances to today with very high income inequality and with a lot of uh, dissatisfaction over the way politics were going. Um, And then you mentioned the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. There was a lot of division and violence then, too. Of course, people were assassinated in that time. Right. So is today any worse? Is it any any different? I would say what's different about today are two things. One is that this is now clearly a political identity. In the 1960s, it wasn't necessarily with the civil rights movement. Even with the Vietnam War, the political parties were divided among within themselves on those issues. Okay. Today, we have a clearer political division between the two parties. It doesn't mean that the parties agree among themselves on everything, but we're more clearly divided in that people who identify with one party or the other form their views based on what the party says or what certain leaders within the party says. They may actually change their views according to that on different issues. Mm-hmm. And they begin to have social relationships um, according to, um, you know, communicate, uh, socializing with even uh, belonging to organizations or identifying organizations based on that political identity. Mm-hmm. And there, there are other kinds of identities there sports interest groups, their um, religious affiliation, their racial or ethnic identity, their sexual orientation also become bundled into this. And so we have many identities lining up on these two separate lines. And we haven't seen this kind of political division along with the social divisions and the sorting into these two political lines we haven't seen this before uh, to this extent in the United States. Okay. The second reason why I think it's different today is because we are facing existential threats as a country and as a world. We have never resolved the nuclear threats. And now with Oppenheimer coming out, I think maybe that will come back onto the public uh, agenda and people pay attention to it again. But we still have nuclear weapons and, and sometimes with not very stable political control. We're looking at Russia, you know, today and others. Um, And of course, climate change. And when we cannot agree, even among ourselves in a country, on moving forward with addressing, these are are clearly existential threats. The same with the pandemic health threat. And if another one arises, you know, these are existential threats that we simply are not agreeing on uh, even addressing, even that they are a threat. That they're even a threat, right? Just the basic understanding, the facts, quote unquote, if you will. Yeah, I was going to ask you that later, but you, you got to it now because you wrote in a, a piece in 2019, you said the increased party polarization in the 1990s and 2000s as Americans sorted into more ideologically homogenous political parties. And I was wondering if that if that actually was new. So back in, say, the let's go to MAGA to make America great again, when I don't know exactly when that was, I'm assuming the 1950s, leave it to Bieber kind of world. Um, there wasn't that same level of full ideology that you identify completely. If you're a Republican, you have these views and Democrats, you have that. He's saying there's more there's more movement within the parties. Exactly. Okay. <clears throat> it's what we call um, cross cutting differences. And so there were a lot of things there were 
coalitions that were built with one part of the Republican Party and one part of the Democratic Party. So for the civil rights movement, for example, and, but not all Democrats, because there were many Southern Democrats, Democrats at right. that time, um, did not favor civil rights. <laughs> and so the parties were not homogeneous within uh, themselves at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there were you know, different factions, what we would call a catch-all party. It had many different uh, views. Generally, you could say Democrats were a little bit more liberal on what we'd say now progressive. Republicans may be conservative on economic issues, but but not on every issue and not entirely. There were certainly conservative Democrats and liberal uh, Republicans or socially liberal Republicans, especially. Okay. Great. Thank you. So the next question then would be, well, how did, how did we get here? And and in your writing, um, you've pointed out three things just loosely, I would say uh, the durability of identity politics, uh, institutional characteristics like binary choice in the electoral system, uh, and then the trend of partisan sorting. So I was wondering if you could say a couple words about, uh, it seems to me at least that maybe these are the three big pieces you're, you're identifying as why the U S is in this position. Yes. The partisan sorting really, you know, started back in the 60s and 70s, and it was partly um, every time there's a movement forward, there's often uh, some backlash from people who feel threatened by that movement. That's happened with women's equality. It's happened with um, with gay rights, and it certainly happened with civil rights in the 60s. And so there was some backlash then that combined with an intentional strategy by the Republican Party when they saw an opportunity after the civil rights bills were passed in the 60s to gain some support from those Southern Democrats that, you know, felt some threat from that or some fear from that. And so there was an intentional strategy uh, by the Republican Party leading up into the 70s and then with Ronald Reagan, both starting with Nixon and then Reagan, too gain support among Southern Democrats, both on racial issues and also on religious issues. Mm -hmm. And Ronald Reagan really went after um, evangelical Christians to join the Republican Party. And so we began to see a sorting into that so that today we do see, you know, over time where more of the, um, uh, the Democrats are representing more of the racial and ethnic identifying minorities in the country um, more people with secular religious views or diverse religious views, Republicans, uh, more of uh, white, uh, religious, conservative Christians. So, so we see that social sorting. Um, the institutional makeup is a second one, which is fascinating for the United States. The United States is exceptional looking around the world at other democracies, especially other kind of peer democracies, what we consider other mm -hmm. wealthy, established uh, mm -hmm. democracies, in that we have an institutional setup. First, we're the only ones that have this indirect election to the president through the mm -hmm. Electoral College. Right. Second, we have an extremely strong Senate. Other countries do have two houses of uh, national in the National Congress, but our Senate is, is extremely strong. And of course, that's related to our federal system with the state representation. But the third is the way we elect our representatives to the House of Representatives, as well as to most of our state legislatures in what we call single member districts. And so we have these small geographic districts where we're electing our representatives to government. Okay. The problem is if we're only electing one person in a 
in one district, then all the people who want to vote for somebody else um, have no represent feel like they they perceive that they have no representation because there's only it's a winner take all one right. person wins right. you know right. that right. system yeah and then we have gerrymandering and all this whole practice meaning we have very safe seats and so very few of the seats of our representatives are actually even up for grabs between the parties instead they're up for grabs within the parties gotcha so. Um, so that means that that kind of system favors a two-party system because it's really hard for a third party to break in there mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. an independent to break into there. Mm-hmm. And so we have what we've ended up with is a very strong two-party system, which means there's only two choices. Yeah. So what happens if we get to today and you have uh, leaders or candidates that um, you may not agree with what they're doing. You may be even shocked by what they might say or do or promise to do. Mm-hmm. But if you are traditionally in this party and your political identity, which was the third aspect, this identity aspect, I, I now perceive my, this is my identity. And it, you know, if spreads out into my friends and family and social relations. So you, you have this identity and loyalty to a party, but you don't like the candidate. The only other choice is this other party. There's only one other real choice. Right. You might vote for a smaller party, but it's kind of a throwaway, kind of a wasted vote. So you've only got this other party. Well, this other party now with our extreme polarization, we are now seeing them as a threat. And we're hearing the political messages from political leaders who are re-emphasizing uh, this threat or even inventing a threat and the other side is an enemy. Mm-hmm. And so we say, well, we're not going to vote for them. Right. And so we're going to go ahead and keep voting for this person that you may not even agree with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what they say about democracy, what they, you know, it, it, any any of their uh, aspects. And so this is this binary, this rigid system that locks us in and it locks in the political candidates as well. They're afraid to compromise and negotiate with the other side because they're right. afraid they'll be punished by voters who see right. that as selling out. Right. Yeah, we've it's seen it. even treasonous and traitorous. Right. And they right. hear those words being used in yeah. the political, you know, yep. atmosphere. And and so this is a this is a real problem. If we can't communicate, if we can't negotiate if we can't compromise we cannot solve um, our problems wow thank you so all right we got them all we got the identity politics and th- that really ties into the partisan sorting too i, I would i would assume they yeah. all kind of the three of them kind of really really dovetail what are some of the consequences of this particular polarization i was thinking about um you're writing about political violence the potential for violence i interviewed last week I interviewed a man named michael roth who's the president of Wesleyan University. And he's kind of a public academic. He, you'll see him in New York Times here and there and CNN and whatnot. And I asked him a question similar to this. I told him I was talking to you about this particular time and what makes it different. And he first thing he talked about was violence and the potential for this kind of violence. And so that kind of dovetails with what you're saying. But then also uh, the eroding of democracy piece. So you wrote 
Uh, the most common outcome of episodes where democracies reached pernicious levels of polarization was some form of major democratic decline, with many of the countries descending into some form of authoritarianism, right? And ties into a quote later in that same piece. Uh, in other cases like Turkey and Poland, leaders relied on explicitly polarizing populist strategies to gain and retain power, sowing division to energize their supporters while claiming that it's necessary to curtail democracy. So please tell me that's not what we're doing right now. And particularly, I, I live in a state where we're banning books and things like that now in schools. And it, and it seems, I don't want to think we're going down that road, but. Well, at a minimum, we have a problem of dysfunctional government. As we discussed earlier, um, we have real difficulty in solving problems at the at the national level. And so we have paralysis in many ways. We're probably going to have another, you know, we could have another shutdown of the government over the budget deficit. We almost did, almost went into default mm-hmm. uh, as a country, uh, financial default. At the state level, it's somewhat different. And here where many of our states, the majority actually of our states are controlled completely by one party or another. Mm-hmm. That is governor in both houses of the legislature. Yep. And so that means they can do whatever they want, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you're seeing that in Florida. Um, and you can also see that in Democrat-controlled states like sure. Massachusetts. So that that presents a different kind of atmosphere. So that is one uh, group imposing their views on the other. And without necessarily, and we just saw North Carolina, you know, there was one, they, they have a Democratic governor, but the Republicans now have because one Democratic uh, representative changed her uh, identity to Republican. And gotcha. so now the Republicans have a um, a uh, veto-proof majority. They can override a veto by the governor because they have two-thirds. Other gotcha. states have that as well. Wisconsin has been having that and others. So, so that means that one party, if they want to, can simply impose their will without mm-hmm. – doesn't matter if there's great dissent um, – from even sometimes it's from a majority of the population in the state. This gets back to the, the, our institutional makeup. A minority of the vote of the people of the voters can elect even a supermajority in our legislatures to give this kind of veto-proof possibility. That's been happening in Wisconsin. Happens in many states. It's because of this single-member districts, this electoral system, the way we elect our representatives. And it's, I think that's got to change. Part of the solution is to, um, is to change that. So that's the minimum um, problem for democracy. But we have another problem. And when you talk about violence and democratic erosion, that is that the way our system works as well, it's easy for a small group, a minority, to kind of capture a political party. And that has been happening um, within the Republican Party in particular as um, a a very strong kind of coherent group of voters who are not necessarily the majority, even of Republicans, Mm -hmm. but they're more extreme who will are willing to, you know, threaten uh, candidates, what they call being primaried. So uh, any candidate who might want to you know, compromise with Democrats and figure out some solution 
but if they're accused of being traitors or sellouts um, and, you know, well, we're going to primary you, we're going to put up a more even conservative or a more extreme candidate Mm -hmm. to challenge you. Mm -hmm. Now that happens on the, on the democratic side as well. Um, And that happens, you know, sometimes on the more, on the further progressive side, but what it means is that the center is dropping out of our democracy, but the Republican Party in particular has been willing to go along with extreme positions. Right now we have in our Congress, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, in order to get elected, made promises to a small extremist faction within the Republican Party, which we're now seeing playing out and holding hostage to their desires on the budget and on other issues. So even within the Senate, one particular senator from Alabama is holding out on filling many positions within the Defense Department right, and, the right, military, right. Yep. and military promotions because he can do that because of our yeah. system. Tuberville, right? So, yeah, yep. Tuberville. Yeah. So when we have leaders who are kind of afraid of their voters and afraid to stand up to calls for violence or calls to impose extreme views, or who are even willing to espouse themselves extreme views and anti-democratic positions in order to gain votes. Uh, This happened a lot with the election laws when even leaders who didn't believe there was a problem with our election system, but because many of their voters believed it, felt like they had to kind of buy into that Mm -hmm. and pass all these more extreme laws. Same on many uh, different issues. Then then this is where we run into a problem with the potential. If we have political leaders who are not only afraid to denounce calls to violence or acts of violence or threats of violence or threats of anti-democratic action, but who might actually even be espousing it, Mm. that is a a real threat. democracy. And I think that that's happening in the Republican Party because it has been captured by, uh, really, by Donald Trump. It looks like Mm -hmm. today still holds, you know, unusual sway and his supporters over it so that many of the Republicans will kind of tolerate or go along with Mm -hmm. um, actions and follow his lead, for example, in discrediting the justice system, discrediting the FBI. So discrediting many of our public institutions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because Trump does it to protect himself for his own, you know, uh, mistakes. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That, that, that's a bad road to, to go down. So thank you for that. That, that, the violence in the democracy part, I just hadn't put them quite together, but that, that's nice. Okay, well, before we get to the last one, the big one, real quick one about uh, more international. So how does the U.S. fit, uh, say, with other countries in this regard? I know you, you've studied Venezuela extensively, but you studied Brazil and Lulu and all the rest, for example. So how, how does the U.S. fit in relative to some other places in terms of our uh, pernicious political polarization? Yeah, it's it's much more, we're, we, we are very, uh, divided much more like other uh, younger or less established or less wealthy democracies who are eroding uh, their democracies as well as being polarized. And so the U.S. is much closer to cases like India 
Brazil, even Turkey and Hungary that have eroded tremendously. Um, we're not we're not as bad as Venezuela, which is now a completely authoritarian state, but uh, we are as as perniciously polarized as many of these other countries. Unlike most of the wealthier um, European democracies, Japan, uh, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, those that you might you know consider uh -huh. sort of more pure countries. Uh -huh. So yes, it is unusual. Okay. So then the million dollar question, um, how do we get out? So you've said uh, in a different interview, uh, you said we have such a myth around our constitution and American exceptionalism. First, it makes people very complacent. And second, it takes leaders a very long time to recognize the risks we're facing. It's very hard to adapt. So how does that uh, tie into fixing our, our current kind of um, our position in polarization. Can some of the reforms used in other countries, would they work here? Do you see political of uh, certain particular people or programs that might point us in the right direction? But how, how do we, I guess we got to stop digging. The first thing, get out of a hole is you got to stop digging. But what would you, uh, what would you recommend if you had the, the magic lever you could pull, what would you do? It's complex because there are uh, a number of different facets of our polarization. Uh, we haven't even talked about all of them. Uh, so it is complex. And it's, uh, but what I want to focus on are the incentives for political leaders. We have, there's a, there's a lot of movement. When I started this project eight years ago, not very many people were talking about it. Now, many people are talking about it and are concerned about both our polarization and what's happening to our democracy. So there, there's, you know, a lot of citizen led efforts to figure out how can we cross the divide? How can we communicate with people who have different views? Can we do these bridging kind of exercises and come back together, find common values and interests? That all is a very important. The problem is, it's not going to change the top level unless there's a tremendous groundswell of pressure. Uh, from below. That can change the incentives for political leaders. That hasn't happened yet, but that needs to happen. Okay. And that's going to require not only grassroots, you know, citizens coming together, um, but it's going to require business leaders and faith leaders and, you know, media and cultural and artistic uh, entertainment figures academia, you know, it's going to require a lot. Yeah. The problem is, of course, agreeing on specific proposals to push right. for that. That's more difficult. Okay, so we've got to change the incentives of our political leaders right now, because of our institutional structure, the setup, the way we elect people that I talked about. Um, there's a lot of other things, you know, the way our media works, there are lots of different aspects. But I think we need to change the incentives. So one of the first things I would say is we need to change this system of electing people. Mm. And if we can move to a system that most other democracies use, right. which is called proportional representation. Okay. What that means is, let's say if you took Florida and you have, um, how many representatives do you have? From Florida? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. So I know we have 67 counties, but that's about the only thing I know. So I don't know how many we have. Okay. Off my head. Okay. So let's Shame say me. I'm going to take Georgia because I know Georgia. Okay. There we, <laughs> go. we have 14 okay. uh, representatives to the um, to Congress, to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Okay. If we instead of having 14 little 
districts where only one person wins, that winner-take-all kind of thing, which can be gerrymandered to favor sure. one party. Uh, yeah. Whoever's in power, you know, will gerrymander it for right. all the district lines to favor them. Yeah. Um, if we created, let's say, four larger districts so that there would be four people or three people elected for each district, what would happen then in this other kind of system called proportional representation is all the political parties, including in Georgia, we have three, basically, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. Okay. The Libertarian doesn't ever win a seat, mm-hmm. but they are usually on the ballot. They could all run. And let's say in a three-person district, it's feasible, it's possible that each one of them could win a district because the the, the people, the voters would split up into the parties that they wanted to vote. Yeah, It's possible if the Libertarians could convince enough people well, now it's not a wasted vote. We could actually win a seat. A seat, you know, yeah. Possibly. Mm-hmm. There could even be one of each party, or there might be two Republicans and one Democrat. Sure, sure. People, okay. people would feel, so that's proportionate. Mm-hmm. It's representation proportionate to the number of people who vote for them. Mm-hmm. That makes people feel more represented, it, right. and, and it's fairer, and it weighs votes equally. Yeah. And so people will feel like, Okay, now I've got somebody in there I can go to. I can choose which one of those representatives I want to go to for whatever I need, my constituent services. Um, But I feel like there's somebody in Washington, you know, now representing me. And that also means that it might allow the breakup of this really rigid binary system that we have. It's Mm -hmm. an either or. Mm -hmm. It might allow either for a libertarian to come in or it might allow for, um, uh, you know, a, a less extreme um, candidate being chosen in a primary right, by right. either the Democrats or Republicans. Mm-hmm. So I think that would help a lot and start to change the incentives, give us more flexibility. And and if we had more political parties, it could also allow for some coalitions to be to be built, more flexibility, more fluidity in that sense. So we might actually start to solve some problems, to make people feel less threatened mm-hmm. by the other choice, by the other side. And that would help strengthen our democracy, right. make it uh, more effective, start solving problems, and make people yeah. feel better. This, the cynic in me says that's the fox guarding the chicken coop. You know, they're not going to just, the Republicans and Democrats aren't in a mood to share, right? You know, so like, so, but maybe that's where the grassroots part comes from or the. That's exactly you know, the, right. The, the, the it, up, that's going to take mobilizing people, organizing people, educating people. What are these alternatives that we could be doing? Why are we just following this system mm-hmm. just because we've been, you know, one thing most people don't realize we didn't used to, we didn't always have this system. Mm. This system of only electing one person per district came about because of a law in 1967. So only in 1967 did we have a law that said this is how it's going to be done. Okay. Before that, the states could choose uh, how okay. it was going to be done. Okay. Okay. So this is not in the Constitution. Sure. It's sure. not anything. So all we have to do is get Congress to repeal that law. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so that's that's all. Yeah, that's, that's all. That's all. <laughs> um, but and and you're right. Yeah, people who are already elected according to a system don't necessarily want to change it. But I will tell you, uh, I've been hearing that you know it's not fun to be in Washington. It's a nasty I environment. Jeez, I bet. 
And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people are not going into politics because of it either. Mm. But even the people who are there aren't necessarily happy with it. So I think that mm. there could be, you know, a movement if there's enough pressure from below and voters are organizing and say, we want to change this. Oh, that's you know, there might, uh, it might be able to build a big enough coalition of people who would, who would change that law in Washington. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. I've asked a lot of people that I've interviewed um, from artists. I've interviewed musicians and writers, poets, Noam Chomsky, professors. I always ask them that question. What could we do? What would be the number one thing? And for me, it was always, we got to get rid of this oligarchy, this two-party system. You know, remember that bumper sticker in 2016 or whatever, ready for oligarchy. Like it didn't really matter, you know, Clinton or Trump, you know, um, right. but, uh, but your comments are kind of inspiring, you know, that, okay, maybe, maybe there is a road, you know, to do that. So I'm, done, I'm kind of beating my head yeah. up against the wall about it. All right, professor, thank you very much. That's it for me. Um, any, uh, anything else we didn't get to that you think you need is important you want to throw in, or we, we hit all the bases. Oh, there's so much more to talk about, but I think it's like a whole semester for now. It's a whole semester's worth of discussion, right? Well, thank you very yeah. much. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you and I appreciate your okay. time. I'll be in touch. I'll okay. send you an email with some loose ends. Okay. Take All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Jennifer McCoy for carving out some time for me to ask her these questions. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. As I've said before, one of the benefits of this blog for me has been the opportunity to speak with some musicians and writers and other artists whose work I followed and felt a connection with, and also with a wide range of intellectuals who are contemporary and cutting edge and continuing to push the envelope using their skills and talents to search for answers to social problems. And Professor McCoy certainly checks this box. I consider it fortuitous that I came across her work right when I was wrestling with the political and social fallout of four years of the Trump presidency, followed by three years of national unrest and the looming prospect of another four Trump years on the horizon. It terrifies me. But this interview gives me hope that maybe from the ground up, we can make some changes to our anachronistic political models. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of the blog is to engage in public sociology, which tries to bring academic discussions out to the street, so to speak. Please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments at jr.sociallandscape.com, and I'll be sure to respond. And finally, The Village of the Sun provided the music from their 2022 release titled First Light. If you're feeling so inclined, please push the yellow donate button on the homepage. And thanks for listening. <laughs>